I used to live in Colorado. I was uh, I was a Texan who moved there after college to serve in a ministry, and uh, I hadn't lived there for very long when uh, when I got invited to go hike a 14er. Which so a, a Texan moving from Colorado, it's such an exciting thing because you fall there and you just quickly fall in love with the mountains. So so any opportunity to go hiking or anything like that, man, I was totally all in on that. I was excited for any opportunity. And on top of that, the person who invited me to go hiking was a cute single lady who would eventually go on to become my wife. So, so needless to say, I was all in on this opportunity. So she, she took me to hike my first 14er. Now, I didn't even know what a 14er was, but again, who was going to say no to this opportunity? So for those of you who maybe don't know, a 14er is just kind of the, the slang term for a mountain that's over 14,000 feet. So, so, so this is a huge mountain, and so they, they have them all labeled, and people go and they hike 14ers all the time, so, so that's a thing to do if you're in Colorado or if you're in the Rockies, go hike 14ers. Now, this particular one that she was taking me on, this was Long's Peak, which, since I'm speaking to Minnesotans primarily, most of you probably don't know. If, you, if this was a room full of Coloradans, they, they would be laughing at me right now. Because you certainly don't want your first 14er to be Long's Peak. Long's Peak is a massive hike, right? So, so I, I got on the Colorado Trails website the other night to, just to look up the details of it, to make sure I remember this correctly. But, but from the trailhead to the summit is about eight and a half miles of 5,000 feet of gain. All right. So, so on the website, it, it actually says that if you're a mere mortal, you should expect the time that it takes to be about 18 hours to, 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 to summit it and to come back down. So this is a huge undertaking, right? And again, this was my first 14er. So, so there we were. We, we were hiking up this mountain. And um, I, I think I made it about halfway before she finally had to just pick me up and throw me over her shoulder and carry me up the rest of the way. I don't remember for sure what happened because I kept going in and out of consciousness. But I've heard that the summit is beautiful. She said it was great and that we had a really great time up there. So on the way back down, so imagine, so, so we're both completely exhausted, right? We're coming down this mountain. It's been a long day. We're both probably mildly dehydrated and certainly hungry. We're coming back down, and there's all these cutbacks as we come back down. So we're getting lower, and, and a cutback is just kind of a turn in the trail. So, so we'd be going along, and we would see what we would think would be the end of the trail, the trailhead, where our car would be parked, and we'd be able to get in and drive off. We'd get to that point only to realize it was just another bend in the trail. And then, and then we, we would keep hiking towards what looked like it was the end of the trail, and we would get there, and it was just another cutback. And we kept going and going. And I swear, I think the hardest part of that entire hike was just all of these cutbacks, back and forth, back and forth, because we kept thinking the end was there, but it wasn't really yet. We knew it was going to happen at some point. We had the promise that our car was, well, I guess it wasn't for sure a promise because someone could have stolen it, but we were pretty confident that our car was somewhere in the near future. We were going to get in the car, we were going to drive off in the car, and then we would eat a steak dinner. So, so, so we were excited about that. We had this promise, and as we all know, Promises are good motivators, right? We, we did eventually, we did eventually hit that parking lot. We did eventually drive out of there and we did eventually eat that steak dinner as well. And it was, it was an amazing time. If you're ever in Colorado, don't hike Long's Peak. Promises 
Promises are good motivators. They give us something to long for. They give us something to look forward to. More and more, employers are recognizing in the workplace that giving promises to their employees help to motivate and encourage their employees for productivity, and it works. Think about your wedding vows, which obviously they're not foolproof, but but think about your wedding vows and how those help to motivate you, both the making promises, but also receiving those promises. They're there to encourage us. They're there to push us. So this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about. Promises and the role of promises, and more specifically, some of Christ's promises to us. We're going to look this morning at how Christ provides us promises to empower perseverance. Christ provides us promises to empower perseverance. We're looking this morning at Revelation chapter three, verses seven to thirteen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up, and we'll read the passage together. Again, this is Revelation chapter three. Verses seven to thirteen. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from from my God out of heaven, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. Again, we thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word, Lord. I pray that you would just guide us, that you would that you would open, that you would reveal the wondrous things in your law, Father. That you would make it clear to us in such a way that it would change our hearts, Father. That it would draw us closer to you. That it would give us a bigger, grander vision of who your Son is, and that we would just be radically changed. Father, please work in us, Lord. I pray that you would guide my words as I speak this morning. That I would speak with clarity. That I would speak accurately, Father, about your gospel and about your goodness and about your word. Lord, please work powerfully. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. This morning, we're continuing on to the next church in our series of the Revelation churches. This is the church of Philadelphia. Now, no, not not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Just as the rest of the series has been about ancient churches and what what was called Asia Minor, what we today call Turkey. This is continuing on in this sentiment. This is this is ancient Philadelphia, right? This was a smaller city that was built actually on a fault line. So, so they ended up having a very significant earthquake in A.D. 17 that ended up leveling the city. 
to such a degree that Rome actually had to come in and rebuild the city for them. So AD 17. So so that, that's well before the events that take place that take place in this letter and the writing of this letter. But still, even after that, that earthquake in AD 17, they continued to have tremors. They continued to have smaller earthquakes all the way up even to this time. So this was a significant issue for those who lived in the city. In fact, actually, to such a degree that a number of people moved out of the city. They moved out of the city and moved along, the, moved into the countryside, and then they became a much more agrarian kind of context, right? Because people recognized it wasn't safe to live in the city. Um, ancient historians would say that the walls of all the buildings and cities were covered with cracks because it was just so unsafe. As we look at this next church in Revelation, there are two things that really stand out as being unique about them. The first thing is that there's no rebuke for Philadelphia. As we read through the passage, you probably noticed nothing stood out as, uh, as a condemnation or as a rebuke against them. Christ only had positive things to say about them. The other unique thing is the number of promises that are given to the Church of Philadelphia. They have more promises than any of the other churches that we've looked at or will look at. So Christ had some huge, significant promises for these people that we're going to delve into today. Now, looking at verse 8, we see the first promise that's mentioned, and that's the promise of salvation. Verse 8, Jesus told them, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. All right, so this promise harkens back to verse 7 and Jesus', Jesus description of himself, which said um, that he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Right. So this is a description of who Jesus is. But what does it mean by key of David? What does it mean for Jesus to have the key of David? Well, this language comes right out of, out of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. So if you glance back at Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, Isaiah there is referring to Eliakim. Eliakim was a steward in the house of the king, right? He, and he was being given a special honor, a special privilege by being given the key to the kingdom. The key of David. It's given to him. Now see, in the ancient world, typically a lock was only made with one key. Only one key. So if you had the key, then you had the power. You had the power of the kingdom. You had the power to unlock. You had the power to let in. It was an incredibly powerful position. Christ is saying he has the key, but not just to a physical kingdom. He has the key to the kingdom, the kingdom of God, right? He's saying that he has the ability to grant salvation as he deems fit. He has the ability to open salvation up to others. He uses a very similar kind of description in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 9, where he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. If Jesus controls the door, then no one can take salvation away. The Philadelphian believers are totally safe. They don't have to worry about anything. Now, this is especially significant for the Philadelphian believers because like many of the other churches that we've seen, they struggled with persecution from the, uh, from, from the Jewish community there. The Jewish community had begun to excommunicate them, which means the Jewish community had begun to kick them out of the synagogue, which in a sense was denying them fellowship with God. So the Jews felt. But Jesus is saying here, they can't kick you out of what really matters. What really matters is my kingdom. And they have no ability to deny, to deny that from you. 
So, so they had the promise of salvation. Our second promise comes in verse 9. In verse 9, where it reads, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. So, 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 so Jesus here, he's calling out the Jewish persecution that the church had already been experiencing. He uses the same language that he's used previously when he was addressing the church of Smyrna, and he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Right? Jesus doesn't pull punches. He's not, he's not one who filters himself too much. Then he notes that, uh, that they claim to be Jews, but they're not really Jews. What, is, what does he mean by that? Are they confused about their heritage? Are they confused about where they come from? I think his point is similar to, what, to Paul's point in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. There in Romans 2 it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision an out, outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So, so this, isn't, this isn't any effort to be anti-Semitic or anything along those lines. It's a clarification about what it is to be God's people. Being God's people isn't just about not being a Gentile, right? Being a part of God's people, it's not about genetics. The nation of Israel had rejected their Messiah. They had rejected, they had shunned their king. So true Israel are those who follow the Israel king, the Israelite king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That marks true Israel, not those who reject him. So ultimately, it's not about where you're from or who your family is or your race or the culture that you were raised in. It's about faith in Christ. And in an ironic twist here, it's an ironic twist, Jesus actually describes the future of the unbelieving Jew in the latter portion of verse 9 where it reads, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So he notes three things here. He notes that he will make them come, he will cause them to bow down, which means he will cause them to submit to these Gentile, to these genuine Philadelphian believers, and they will, uh, and he will confess his love for these people. This is so ironic because this is exactly what the national, this is exactly what national um, um, Israel had expected to happen to them. They had expected the Gentiles to come in the last times and bow down before them, right? They got that out of Isaiah 60, verse 14, where it says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come, bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. So they expected that to be fulfilled for them. However, now they're being told, it was never, it was never about that. It was never about national ethic, about national ethnic, or um, about being a, being a specific race or anything along those lines. It's always been about people who followed God. And that when Jesus returned, people who followed God through the Messiah, through the King. Jesus shows that all unbelievers are going to be on equal footing on the last day. This is a vindication of God's people. All of creation will recognize the children of God. And God, God has put in all of us a sense of right and a sense of wrong. We all have it built into us. And this is a recognition of the evils of this world and that they need to be dealt with, right? There needs to be, there needs to be a dealing with sin. There needs to be an accounting. And all things will be put to rights and there will ultimately be justice. That's the vindication that these Philadelphian believers can look forward to. 
Jesus goes on to elaborate a third promise, a third promise in verse 10, uh, verse 10b. Jesus Christ declares there, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. There is a future trial that is coming on the whole world, and that trial is for those who are specifically, those who specifically dwell on earth. Now, when Revelation uses that kind of language of dwelling on earth, it's very consistent. It's not just those people who live here with us. Rather, it's looking more specifically, it's calling those earth dwellers. Those are people who have not put their faith in God. Those are the non-Christians. It's difficult to know exactly what trial um, Christ has in mind that he's looking forward to that's going to come upon those who are non-Christians. Um, it's probable that this is, this, is a, uh, this is a tribulation, kind of an end-time tribulation that they're looking forward to that's going to come eventually. But it probably also includes some trials that they experience even now, even in the present. It's probably a both-and, both a future element, but then also a present element. Because the Philadelphian believers obviously didn't live to see the great tribulation at the end of time, which still hasn't even come on us, right? But this trial that's coming, this tribulation, it's specifically for the earth dwellers, and it's a pouring out of God's wrath on them, okay? And though we don't know exactly what it will look like, we can be confident that God keeps his children. God keeps his believers from experiencing that. The same language is uh, the same language used in this verse of keeping them from it in Greek is also used in John seventeen fifteen. In John seventeen fifteen, it reads, "I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them." And there's that expression, "keep them from." That's the exact same language in the Greek. Keep them from the evil one. So, so it's Jesus protecting his people in the midst of this coming tribulation. There would be a protection of them. What does it mean by protection? Because obviously, believers still experience pain and hardship, right? I mean, we've certainly, and as we look at the book of Revelation, we see God's people continuing to experience pain and hardship. And certainly when we look at church history, we see that God's people have always experienced pain and hardship. And in fact, Jesus Christ actually makes, him, makes this promise himself when he says that in this world you will have trouble, right? So what does it mean then? Well, this is ultimately God's protection of his people from God's own wrath. This is a protection of his people from his own wrath, which will come to rest on the world. Jesus has promised to preserve his people in the midst of it. This is similar, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, this is similar to the experience um, in the Exodus. In the Exodus, when God, um, God brought ten plagues upon his people, not all, or sorry, on the Egyptians, not all of the, uh, of, not all of the plagues actually fell on the Israelites. In fact, as best as we can tell, the latter ones from four all the way through ten were specifically for the Egyptians because they were a pouring out of God's wrath on the Egyptian people. And God rather preserved his people and protected his people in the midst of it. Doesn't mean that they didn't have any pain or hardship, didn't mean that he, he didn't have any trials, but they weren't experiencing God's wrath. Rather, in the book of Revelation, um, the tribulations of Christians, the hardships of Christians, those are actually considered victories in the book of Revelation because all of the, all the pain and hardship that God's people experience, those are only there to continue to progress the kingdom. God uses those things. When we, are, when we face trials in this world, that's to advance God's kingdom. In the fourth promise, in the fourth promise, Jesus makes the promise of 
coronation, coronation, a crowning of the Philadelphian believers. We read about that in verse 11. John writes, I am coming soon. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Okay, so Jesus is coming. We have this glorious promise that he is coming again. Um, it's interesting to note that this isn't the first time in Revelation that he's promised his return. However, in the other occasions where he's promised his return, it was, uh, it was in the midst of warning because those churches weren't being faithful. But here, to the Philadelphian believers, this is, this is a soothing promise, as it should be for all Christians, that they should be in anxious anticipation that Jesus is coming back. He's going to return to his people. And that's an exciting thing. That's, uh, that's something we should all have our eyes set upon. And he promises that when that happens, when he does return, they will receive their crown. They will receive a crown. Now, the, the word here for crown, this isn't, this isn't a royal crown. In Greek, the word for royal crown would be diadema. But here, this word that's being used is stephanos, which is actually where my name comes from. Right? Stephanos. So Stephanos refers specifically to like a, like a victory wreath. So you would win it in either through a sporting competition or through some type of game or event. Or you could actually even win it for battle, for military battle. But it was something that was given out to people to recognize when they had done well, when they had overcome, when they had conquered. Right? So I actually, I ran track and cross country in high school. And, and I was horrible. I was really bad at it. But I kept running it because I wanted to do something and I had friends in it. And so, and so it was just something we did. And so I never actually got to see this. But I've heard rumors that they actually gave out medals to, to the people who won or did well in races. Um, this would be similar to that sentiment, right? This was something that they were given as a victory symbol. And, and here in Revelation, this crown, this wreath that they're given, this is symbolic of the eternal life that they get to enjoy. The eternal life that they look forward to, but the eternal life that they also get to experience now in the present. There's a both and component about, about eternal life here. Jesus talks about the fifth promise, and he promises construction. He promises construction. This is in verse 12. He will make the conquerors, those who overcome, into a pillar in God's temple. Now, this probably is, sounds fairly odd at first blush because I think most of us hear that and we think, I don't want to be a piece of architecture. That doesn't seem like a good thing, Jesus. You know, again, we, we've had a lot of guys up, up here at the church over the past couple of weeks doing renovation work. And I'm pretty sure if I was to ask any of them if they want to be, become a permanent support beam in our building, that they would quickly say, no thanks, and then they would leave, Right? Uh, so what does Jesus mean here then when he talks about them being a pillar of the temple? Well, and especially in light of Revelation 21, which says that there is no temple in the new heavens and the new earth. So what does it mean for them to be a temple? Well, it's interesting to note, um, Strabo, an ancient, an ancient historian, he noted about Philadelphia that one of the few things that actually survived the earthquake of AD 17 was the pillars of the temples. The pillars of the temples were able to survive for whatever reason. So in Philadelphia, they came to be seen as a, as a symbol kind of of security, right? Of, of permanence, kind of an eternal security about them. So when Jesus here promises that you will be a temple or you will be a pillar in the temple of God, he's promising eternal security to them. The Christian's future is fixed. Verse 12 goes on to say, never shall he go out. 
Again, remember, Philadelphia is a city where everyone was forced to go out. But again, Jesus is promising here, you won't have to go out. There is eternal security. You will be a part of the temple of God, meaning you will be in His presence. You will be with Him. There's a promised intimacy about this. God's people would find security forever in His presence. The final promise is the promise of identification. The latter half of verse 12 could really be broken down into three intermingled promises. Right In the new heavens and the new earth, the Philadelphians would receive three names. They would receive the name of God that would be written on them. They would have written on them the, the, uh, the name of the city of Jerusalem. And they would have written on them Jesus' new name. And all of these names would be apparently, I, I, I keep imagining, tattooed on them. Now, that probably makes some of you squirm because obviously there's a wide spectrum of beliefs about tattoos. So I'm very sorry to let you know that in the eternal state, you're going to be covered in tattoos of people's names. And the funny thing is, is there are some of you listening this morning who probably have quite a few tattoos and you're frustrated because that might mean God would erase the tattoos that you already have to make room for his better tattoos. Now, obviously I'm joking. I I don't know for sure that this is looking forward to tattoos. What we do know is that God promised in the Old Testament His people would be known by His name. And Revelation 22, verse 4, tells us that God's name would actually be on our foreheads. And this is probably this is probably drawing from priestly imagery in the Old Testament where the priest would actually have like a little tablet of some sort or something with God's name actually written on it. It's probably looking forward to that. So we would have both God and Jesus' new name, which... We also don't know Jesus' new name, right? The passage doesn't tell us that. But the significance is, is that we'll be known by the Father and by Jesus' name. Similarly, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, the citizen of a city was known by that city's name. So take, for example, Paul of Tarsus, right? He was a citizen of Tarsus. So Tarsus was attached to his name. Similarly, because we are citizens of a new country, we are citizens of a new city, the city of uh, the city of Jerusalem, God's heavenly city. Because we're citizens of that, we're going to get a new name. We get a new identity. We're going to be wearing the names of God, Christ, and their city, and we'll be marked. We'll be marked by a new degree of intimacy with Him. Right? It's kind of similar how most, uh, most families, uh, most families enjoy having the same last name as each other. Right? Enjoying having the same last name is kind of a symbol of the intimacy. Like you can know my children because my children have my last name. Right? They, they all have more as their last name. And my wife, she has my last name. And together we're known by my last name, by the Moors, because there's a special intimacy. God has made big promises to his children. Right? He's made huge promises for his children to, jo- to enjoy. And all of these elaborate, elaborate promises came for a reason. Because the Philadelphians had persevered. Right? Where, whereas the five churches previous to this, we saw faltering, we saw issues, we saw a return to sin again and again. In this church, we continue to see perseverance. But what exactly does this perseverance look like in this church? Well, verse 8 helps to explain that. In verse 8, Jesus said, I know your works. Um, Here, he's talking about knowing that despite being of little power, right? Here he says that they're of little power. That probably points to both them being maybe a smaller church, but also it probably points to them being maybe culturally more insignificant in their city. 
right? They're, they're a smaller church that maybe hasn't had the same impact that some of the larger churches that we've looked at has. But despite this obvious lack, despite that, they've been faithful at keeping the word and not denying the name. Keeping the word and keeping the name. Despite being futile, they persevered in their efforts to cling to God's word, to make it known. It fueled their efforts to the degree that Jesus even brings it up twice in this passage, both here and then in verse 10. Though they were probably tempted to build their ministry around other platforms, around other topics that might have seemed more glamorous and maybe even seemed more relevant, right? But they continued to come back time and time again to God's word, recognizing that that was their source of strength. That's what they needed, right? They made God's word paramount in the ministry of their church. And not just in their church, right? Not just in their organization, but even in their personal lives. All of the individual Philadelphian believers made God's word central and they clung to it. This is a defining feature of the churches, of churches and believers that are faithful to Christ, resting in his word. In addition to keeping his word, even though they hadn't accomplished maybe the grand things that they, that they aspired to, they were faithful to keep Christ and to not deny his name. This is a broader description of the Philadelphians' loyalty to Christ. And it probably includes various areas that, that we've looked at in the previous churches. So, so they, they probably didn't deny their first love, as we saw in Ephesus. But rather, they maintained their fervent devotion. They maintained their sound doctrine. And they, uh, and they guarded themselves. They buffeted themselves against erroneous teachings that were trying to creep into the church. They've continued to live out faithful lives of service before God. We can assume all of these things are happening in this church, right? There is a simple, dedicated devotion that's taking place here. They weren't a huge congregation. No books were going to be written about them. They hadn't transformed their city. They hadn't developed the newest, most cutting-edge ministry philosophy. They, weren't an, they, they maybe weren't an entertaining church, but they were faithful. They were faithful. As a church body and as individuals within the church, they were a people who kept the name of Christ. And now Christ had rich promises in store for them. But how? How were they, how were they able to do this when all these other churches had failed? Jesus said that they had little power. So if they had little power, how then were they able to accomplish such an amazing feat? How were they able to demonstrate this kind of faithfulness in the midst of persecution, where did the long-term faithfulness come from from when they weren't seeing the amazing kind of sensational things that we all long for? In the midst of their frustration and probably what felt like a very meager ministry, how did they faithfully carry on? Well, our passage notes at least two things. The first thing comes in verse 9, when Christ has the non-believing Jews bow down before the believing Gentiles, and he states why. Now, you would think here, you would think here that he would have them, he would have them bow down before, uh, before the Philadelphians because they had overcome. Because our passage said they did overcome, right? Or, or you think they would have them bow down because, because they kept his word. Because again, we see that also in this passage. Or you think that maybe they would have them bow down because, uh, because they, they were just so faithful, which is also a true thing. But that's not the reason noted here in verse 9. Rather, he has them bow down to him and he displays them because he loved them. 
because he loved them. That's the foundation. That's the bedrock. That ends up being the subfloor that everything else is built up on. Christ's love for them. At their final vindication, at the hour, at the end of time, when, when their faithfulness has stood the ground, their ground, right? At the forefront of everything else, God is at the center and what he generously doled out on them because of his great love for them. That's front and center. The second, the second empowering feature here at work in our passage is, uh, is summarized in verse 7. A few things here. Christ is the Holy One. Holy One is Isaiah's preferred description for God. And then the, uh, the demons in the Gospels end up picking that description. and They refer to Jesus as the Holy One. This is a mark of Jesus' divinity, right? This is a mark of his godliness. Here he's also, he's also referred to as the True One. True one probably means two different things. It probably points to both him being genuine and accurate and, and all of that, but it also probably points to his faithfulness, right? He is faithful. And finally, as already addressed, he holds the keys to the kingdom, meaning he is sovereign over all the kingdom. And consequently, it's because of his sovereign faithfulness that they can enter the door of salvation. It's because of his faithfulness they can experience future vindication. It's because of his faithfulness they can enjoy present protection. It's because of his faithfulness that they can look forward to a future coronation where they'll be, and will, will be made pillars in the temple of God and they'll be able to enjoy new names and a new intimacy that far goes beyond their wildest imaginations. It's because of his faithfulness. He is at the center of it. He brings it to pass and he gets the glory for it because it's all about him, right? It's tempting to look at a passage like this and to marvel at their faithfulness and to think, wow, these Philadelphian believers are amazing. They must be such rugged individuals. We need to be more like them. But in truth, in truth, they're faithful because he was faithful to them. Their faithfulness is completely rooted in his already accomplished faithfulness, right? It's not so much that they're a strong people aiding a weak God, right? This is a weak people who hang on, a, who hang themselves on a strong, mighty, sovereign God. They are dependent totally on him. Now, some of you, some of you out there listening this morning, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you don't know who he is. You haven't experienced him. You haven't enjoyed him. You haven't believed him for whatever reason. I would ask you to think through this description this morning. Do you know this God? If you don't, and if, if for some reason, for the first time, you're feeling an inkling, you're feeling a desire to know him and to begin a relationship with him, all you have to do is trust. All you have to do is put your faith in and to turn away from your old life. Put your trust in him. Right? Put your trust in Christ and His finished work and His death and resurrection for you. Throw yourself before His throne. He doesn't, he doesn't desire strong people. He desires weak Philadelphian believers. Right? For you Christians out there, what do we do with these promises? What do we do with these promises? Just as the promises are the result of perseverance empowered by God, right? These are these are promises that they long to that come out of uh, empowered perseverance by God. But so also the promises produce, the promises produce perseverance to enjoy God, right? 
In other words, he promises, the promises are the result that we long for, but they're also part of God's empowerment here in the present. God provides us promises to empower perseverance, right? I, uh, I, I knew my oldest daughter, I knew that she would enjoy the Lord of the Rings novels. I knew that she would love it. Um, and she kept giving it a try, but she was having such a hard time getting over all the names and all the places and all the minutiae that kind of hits you at the forefront of that book, right? It can be a very difficult book to get into when you're not familiar with it. So, so I, I gave her, so I, I, let her, I let her have a little taste of one of the movies, just, just a little taste, just to whet her appetite. And then I gave her this promise. If she, if she read the books, if she read the books, if she was faithful to it, then we would watch the movies together. Which, man, she, she, she tore into the book. She hasn't finished the series yet, but she's progressing so quickly and she's enjoying it. And it's been, been a thrill. She's been able to get past some of the hard stuff at the very beginning. And it's just become a great book. If you haven't read it, I definitely strongly encourage you to check it out. But the point is, promises empower perseverance, right? That encouraged her to get through some of that hardship at the beginning, to get over that hurdle and to enjoy that book. And it's true certainly for us as well. How do we live in such a way as to enjoy God's promises then? Three things. Three things. First thing, comprehend the promises of God. Comprehend the promises of God. First, we must truly comprehend the beauty and the weightiness of His promises to us. We have to embrace how overwhelming they are. Right? How overwhelming they are before, before all other things. It's easy for us to have kind of an academic, kind of a head knowledge about these promises, but to not truly embrace them as a fountain coming up in the middle of an arid desert. Right? That's what these promises should be. They should quench our thirst. They should give us delight. They should overwhelm us. Right? We need to comprehend the promises of God. Number two, we have to confess the promises to God. We confess the promises to God. We need to confess these promises. We should, uh, we should be praying these promises back to God Himself. The Father delights. The Father delights to hear His children pray the prayers of the Spirit and to speak the words of the Spirit back to Him. These are the sorts of prayers the Father delights to answer and delights to say yes to. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to pray for the things that He cares most about. And He reveals these things in His promises. Our prayers should reflect the mind of God and all of His goodness because these are the best things. So pray His promises. The third thing, we need to cling to the promises of God. We cling to them. The promises themselves serve to motivate us and strengthen us in the here and the present through our hardships and our trials, so that when we're overwhelmed by the worries and anxieties of this world, when we're crushed under the mounting pressures and hardships, and even temptations, temptations that make us feel like we're servants and slaves and not free to follow our God, that's when we need His promises. Brothers and sisters, we have glorious promises to look forward to that overwhelm not even just the dismal things of this world. They overwhelm even the best things of this world because they're greater than anything that we can possibly desire. Promises that leave even the greatest joys of this life looking pale and weak and anemic in comparison. They overwhelm everything. Brothers and sisters, we need God's promises. 
We need His whispers of assurance and grace in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our trials. We need His promises. Let us be a people who comprehend and confess and cling to God's promises because we serve such a mighty God and because He uses His powers. He uses His promises to empower perseverance. And His promises are never void. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your promises would undergird us. Father, that the love that You display in them would motivate us, would shake us, would radically change everything. Father, please just draw us to Yourself. Lord, remind us of Your promises. Use Your promises to pierce the calluses of our heart, to, 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 to move us in new ways so that we would just be overwhelmed. Lord, Please draw us to Yourself. Help us to remember Your promises. Help us, to, help us to confess them to You, to pray them, Father, and to cling to them for perseverance, for Your glory. God, we pray this through Your Son and by Your Spirit. Amen.